Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, September 15th, 2015, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Just to remind you, Mercury is going retrograde on Thursday, um, day after tomorrow, and if you are not familiar with that, you can do an Internet search about it or look on our site on the events page. We are truly excited to have Nick Redfern back with us tonight to talk about his new book, Bloodline of the Gods. With dozens of bestsellers from this internationally known author and researcher, Nick's latest work lays out scientific evidence that at least 10% of the human population is descendant from an ancient and advanced alien civilization that has manipulated their blood type. Bloodline of the Gods takes us on an amazing trip into the distant past and to a time when proto-humans were genetically manipulated by ETs, perceived by ancient man as nothing less than all-powerful gods. Encompassing accounts of the legendary Anunnaki, alien abductions, hybrid children, secret and powerful societies, and an elite bloodline that holds significant sway over the planet and its people. Bloodline of the Gods reveals the shocking truth concerning those people who are not entirely human. You can visit the publisher's website at warwickassociates.com. And that's W-A-R-W-I-C-K associates.com. And click on the book title to get your copy now. At the top of the show, it's the Starseed News with Anastasia, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream media. And we'd like to thank Fiona and Vanya for hosting the Switchboard this evening. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com. And thanks go to Tammy, as always, for her dedication to the forum. You can download our show podcast on iTunes or right from our Blog Talk Radio episode page. Just look for the cloud with an arrow on it. If you'd like to support our show, please just click follow on our show page here at Blog Talk and you'll get our weekly show notices. The toll-free number for starseedhotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. Remote healing sessions for people and pets are also available with Tammy. And if you have a birthday coming up, don't miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And if you want a reading to go along with that, please book it at least a couple months ahead to make sure that you get it in time. So first this evening, I am going to introduce Anastasia. Hello, Anastasia. Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening, Arielle. It's wonderful to be with you again. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Wonderful. Good. Well, we have some action going on, as usual, the world's a very active place, a bit of news to report tonight, so I best get started. 
Um, there has been an amazing double eclipse of the sun. This happened a couple of days ago. The sun was eclipsed twice on the same day, but nobody here on Earth got to see it. In fact, it's never been seen on Earth before because it was only visible from Earth orbit. NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory, otherwise known as SDO, recorded the event. What happened was the double eclipse began when the Earth passed directly between the Sun and SDO. The observatory watched as the body of our planet moved slowly across the face of the Sun, which produced a near blackout eclipse. And then when the Earth finally moved aside, about an hour later, another eclipse started, and this time it was the Moon that was crossing the face of the Sun. This came from spaceweather.com, and there is a video about it. Pretty amazing thing to see. Well, a superheated plasma tornado is raging on the sun. It's a giant swirling plume of superheated plasma above the surface of the sun uh, that has been raging for 40 hours uh, during a time that NASA's uh, spacecraft looked on. The mass of plasma was stretched and pulled back and forth by powerful magnetic forces but was not ripped apart. The temperature of the ionized particles observed in this extreme ultraviolet wavelength of light was about 5 million degrees. Very, very hot. And scientists have discovered the world's first proven double meteor impact in Sweden. This is for the first time ever. Swedish scientists have discovered that a double meteor impact happened, a well, hundreds, plural, hundreds of millions of years ago. They discovered two meteor craters that were found very close to one another near a Swedish city, and it was researchers at the University of Gothenburg that found it. They said that found both of them. They said that one of the craters is absolutely enormous, while the second crater is ten times smaller than the one that sits next to it. And the scientists believe that the meteors um, that obviously formed the craters hit the Earth simultaneously. That would have been quite a sight. They say 458 million years ago as a part of a larger meteoric rain. This is the first proven site of a double meteor impact so far discovered. They say, and I quote, according to the scientists, Around 470 million years ago, two large asteroids collided in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, and many fragments were thrown off into new orbits. And some of these, many of these, crashed on the Earth, such as these two that we have just discovered. Now, imagine living 470 million years ago, looking at the sky with an incoming meteor storm. Wow, how primal can that be? I can imagine that very easily. Maybe I was there. Anyway, in Italy, they have had a tremendous amount of rain, a foot of rain in four hours in some places. Heavy rain has swept across many parts of northern Italy just yesterday, causing flooding and landslides. Now, the National Meteorological Agency there in Italy says that some areas saw over 11 inches of rainfall in just four hours. And along the Utah-Arizona border. Now, if you live in that part of the country, which I have, uh, you know that flash flooding can be a very dangerous thing. And sure enough, it's happened. Eight people have died and five others are missing after a flash flood washed away cars at the Utah-Arizona border at, the, at Hilldale, Utah. The flooding, the flooding just ravaged that little community. 
and uh, it's around, in case you don't know where that might be, it's around Colorado City, Arizona, Hildell, Utah, to Colorado City, Arizona. Very unfortunate. I don't know if these people were tourists or what. Locals tend to know to watch out for flash flooding. But in this case, um, they didn't see it coming. Well, a man has been killed by lightning in the Grand Canyon National Park. A young Australian uh, was reportedly killed by what was believed to be a lightning strike when he was hiking along the trail in the Grand Canyon. And uh, I have not reported much about this, but in the last six months, it is a phenomenal amount of lightning strikes to people that are being reported across the world. Now, I have not reported it because I've sort of said to myself in an introspective way that, well, perhaps it's because we now have cell phones and uh, better communication and so on. It may have always been this way. But I'm mentioning it tonight because in uh, the news that I have combed through during the last week, there have been about 12 cases of this, and this is common every week. You know, there are thoughts that uh, the atmospheric conditions of the Earth are changing dramatically and that the increased lightning is a factor of Earth changes. Certainly, there is a great deal more lightning, so they claim, and a lot more people that living on the planet, and a lot of them are being struck by lightning. Just a fact. That's the only story I'm going to report tonight, but like I said, there were a dozen just from the last week alone. If you're out in a thunderstorm, uh, head inside. That's all I can say, because... It is dangerous. Well, there's been a series of earthquakes, including a magnitude of uh, 6.6, that struck in the waters off the coast of Mexico early on Sunday. Now, there were no immediate reports of damage. that has been two days ago, but I still haven't heard anything about that. The USGS initially reported a magnitude of 6.8, and it struck southwest of Sinaloa. Now, there were three other small earthquakes nearby, uh, ranging in a magnitude of 4.9 to 5.3. A lot of activity occurring along the coast of Mexico this past week. And off the California coast, researchers at Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego have released details of a deep sea site uh, roughly 30 miles west of Del Mar, that's just north of San Diego, uh, where methane is sleeping out of, seeping out of the seafloor, and that is the first such finding in that region. Now, methane seeping from seafloors is not uncommon, although it certainly is on the increase and seems to be of particular interest given the underwater volcanoes that we are finding and the increased seismic activity along the Ring of Fire. Just something to be aware of. And I think I may have reported previously a brief story here and there about shark attacks. Well, a newly released United States federal study shows that a record number of sharks swimming off the coast of Florida to North Carolina, and there has created a record for shark attacks this summer. Now, eight people have been attacked along the North Carolina coast this year, and um, they say that they have captured or tagged 2,835 sharks, it's almost 3,000 sharks, from Florida to North Carolina just in two months alone. That was April and May. Now, that compares with 1,800 sharks uh, tagged in 2012. So more sharks and more shark attacks. We don't know why the sharks are coming in to shore, but they are, and there's a lot of them. So if you're out in the water, be mindful. Because, you know, when I was younger, sharks were very, very rare. We just never 
just didn't happen. And uh, when the movie Jaws came out, that seemed so sci-fi and silly at the time. Uh, terrified a lot of people. I thought it was just silly. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, it was very, very rare. And now it's just not rare at all. It's pretty startling. So that is um, ties in with what we see going on as I scan the news of comes into the category of bizarre wildlife behavior, just a lot of strange things, behavior by animals. This is one of those things. And it may be connected also to what I mentioned in one Starseed news show uh, not long back, that maybe perhaps because of the drought on the East Coast, they figure the salinity of the water is going up, and maybe that is why the sharks are coming in shore. Well, here is a really important story for all of you, which is most of us, who are interested in our health and in supplements. There is an article uh, written by, uh, or rather published, I should say, by Nutritional Anarchy. It came out yesterday. You can uh, check this out on the Internet. Look it up, Nutritional Anarchy. The name of their article is A Sour Deception, Mass-Produced Citric Acid, comes from GMO black mold. Now, a lot of us take citric acid, and we think that it's going to be, you know, good for us. What is our food made of, anyway? Well, this guy says, try industrial synthesis, genetically modified mold secretions, hydrochloric acid, mercury-contaminated caustic soda, ferrocyanide, and lots of GMO corn. He said that this is what goes into citric acid and ascorbic acid, otherwise we call it vitamin C, which sounds normal and familiar, and we think that they come from oranges and lemons, but we should think again. This was news to me, everybody. He wrote that since the early early 1900s, the black mold, Aspirilogus niger, has been used to ferment starches to derive citric acid. In 1893, a chemist discovered that citric acid could be produced with penicillin mold and sugar. Wartime disruptions in the Italian citric acid market paved the way for full-scale industrial production after a food chemist discovered that Aspirilogus niger was even more efficient at producing citric acid. Now, uh, Madame Curie, if you'll recall, who invented uh, or discovered the x-ray, radiation, and so on, also developed new methods for fermentation, and Pfizer hired him, oh, excuse me, it wasn't Madame Curie, it was her husband, well, hired him and launched a plant in 1917 to mass-produce citric acid grown from mold in a sugar medium. Now, this person's methods were also used by Pfizer to drastically increase uh, the production of penicillin, which, of course, we credit that with saving countless lives, but Today, it is not only true that nearly all citric acid is made through mold fermentation with GMO corn, but is produced by some of the biggest ag food productions, uh, both in the United States and in China. Now, this is a very long article. For those of you who are interested in such matters, I suggest that you look this up and that you read it. It's startling, it's shocking, and I had no idea. So um, perhaps those of us that care about Our bodies might want to start getting our citric acid from lemons and oranges. There's food for thought. Oh, yeah. Well, out of New York State, New York is going to raise the minimum wage for fast food workers to $15 per hour. 
marking the first time any United States state has agreed to raise the industry's wages that high. The governor said he will try to increase the minimum wage for all workers next round. Fast food workers' wages will reach a minimum of $15 an hour by 2018 in New York City, while they'll have to wait until 2021 for the rest of the state. Hmm, interesting. Now, once the wage kicks in, it could affect approximately uh, 200,000 fast food workers in the state of New York. And we often talk about honeybees here on this program because it's really a... An important topic. Well, a U.S. appeals court ruled on Thursday that federal regulators made a mistake in allowing an insecticide developed by Dow AgroSciences onto the market. They canceled its approval and giving it gives environmentalists a major victory. Uh, the ruling was done by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco, and they say it's significant for commercial beekeepers and others who say a dramatic decline in bee colonies needed to pollinate key food crops is tied to widespread use of a class of insecticides known as neonicotinoids. So they are saying that this lawsuit was filed in 2013 against the EPA that, by people that represented honey and the beekeeping industry. Now, the groups have specifically challenged the EPA approval of insecticides containing this substance, saying that studies have shown that this uh, chemical is highly toxic to honeybees. So, the court has ruled that they will not approve uh, this product for the market, and that's just a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. Good news. Isn't that amazing? You bet. Yeah. Well, here's a wild story. This is our last story for tonight. I I just couldn't believe this. I mean, okay, I hate to sound so surprised all the time. But really, <laughs> science is just, <laughs> I mean, honestly, uh, my jaw just drops so often. I'm grateful for this uh, assignment that I have for Starseed because it really keeps me on top of things and keeps me in awe. Oh, geez. Well, DARPA has developed a prosthetic prosthetic limb that grants near-natural sense of touch through brain chips. Mm. A new prosthetic hand, which connects directly to the brain, has been created by American scientists providing a near-natural sense of touch. The developers claim their new invention could revolutionize the lives of people with missing or paralyzed limbs. The prosthetic hand developed by scientists at DARPA, which is, for those of you that do not know, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Well, anyway, they say that uh, this this hand will help people not only feel things being touched, but the scientists can also control the artificial limb with thoughts. This was released uh, to the press. This is a news story released to the press. Now, the invention is set to become the world's first prosthesis to be controlled directly via the brain, as well as one of the few that could deliver tactile feedback. Now, the DARPA's prosthesis control system consists of two chips embedded in the wearer's brain, connecting it to the sense of pressure-sensitive torque motors placed in the artificial hand. The chips are only one millimeter wide. That's tiny. It contains several electrodes and are placed in the person's motor cortex, which is the part of the brain controlling arm and hand movements, 
and sensory cortex, which is the brain area that receives and identifies signals resulting from different tactile sensations. Wow. That's wow, so that's... wild. That's uh, kind of freaky. You know, we think about transhumanism and uh, cyborgs. That's just wild. That's so, the tip of the iceberg there. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Wow. For a view into the future, I don't think we will recognize this world in 100 years. Anyway, that's it for tonight's news. Ariel, thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. As always, thank you, Anastasia, for bringing us the Starseed News. And we have a great show lined up tonight with Nick Redfern. So let me just get these microphones open here. Um, Lavendar and Nick, let me get your mics open. Okay. Welcome to the show, Nick. And Lavendar, you're ready to go. Oh, Nick, I am so proud of you for writing this book, Bloodline of Odds. Thanks, Lavendar. The whole weekend, about three weeks ago, and just barricaded myself until I finished it. And I was oh, cool. I was just totally in awe uh, after I finished it, and I couldn't wait to get you scheduled to be on our show. So why don't you start out by just telling us, what's the story of Bloodline of the Gods, and what prompted you to write this book? Well, yeah, sure, and, and thanks for those words. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. And uh, but basically, the, the book is a study of a small, <clears throat> excuse me, small percentage of the human population that has blood that's quite significantly different to the vast majority of the population. And a lot of these particular people um, are tied to the UFO phenomenon, particularly in terms of contactee cases, abductions, and feeling drawn to the UFO subject, sometimes for reasons they're not even aware of or they understand, they just feel they are drawn to it. And um, it sort of ties in with abductions, as I said, but also... Um, hybrids and genetic manipulation, not just in the present, but in the distant past as well. And the the people in question have what's called RH negative blood. And um, the whole issue of RH negative blood as it relates to the UFO phenomenon is something that many people, even within ufology, don't know much about at all. Uh, not through any fault of their own, but for the most part, it's a subject that hasn't really being the subject of a great deal of coverage. You know, you can find articles online, and certainly a few more than there were, say, 10 years ago. But you go back before that, there was just sort of literally a handful. Um, and so a lot of people didn't know anything about it. So I thought, well, I, when I was looking for uh, ideas for new books, I thought, you know, I always think um, we want to give the reader, you know, something that's value for money and something that, would be a new concept and an idea for people. And so I, thought, I looked at five or six different ideas and, and decided to focus on this one, the angle of the sort of genetic lineage going from the distant past to the present day and, and just seeing where it all led. And the more research I did, the more and more threads and connections I made that to me felt, you know, that, well, this is a valid story. Let's take it as far as it will go. So uh, will you explain what RH-negative blood is? Yeah, sure. Well, um, it's actually not as... I mean, in in sort of layman's terms, which I certainly am, you know, um, it's actually not that difficult to understand, really, that there are actually four primary uh, blood groups, and they are A, B, AB, and O. So those are the four different groups, A, B, AB, and O. And... um, 
roughly around about 91, 92, 93% of the population is what's called RH positive. And if you're RH positive, um, that means that your blood contains what are called antigens. Now, antigens are proteins that are found on the surface of blood cells. Um, and essentially, they, the term RH is a reference to what's called the rhesus factor. Now, the rhesus uh, monkey, or macaque, to give it its official title that it comes from, um, the rhesus macaque has a 93% identical DNA sequence to the human race. There's only a 7% difference in DNA makeup between us and the rhesus monkeys that makes us look obviously very different to the rhesus monkeys. But, you know, 93% is, is an extremely high level of identical DNA. And so, in other words, this rhesus factor that the vast majority, as I said, about 92% of the population have in their blood is, is, you know, is essentially sort of traceable back to the rhesus monkey and early sort of proto-humanoids, etc. But what makes this story intriguing is this smaller percentage of the population that aren't RH positive, that don't have this particular antigen, and they're called the RH negatives. And it, negatives doesn't have a bearing on their character or anything like that. They're called the RH negatives just because they lack this particular um, antigen, this particular uh, protein that's on the on the cells of uh, the surface of the cells. Now, so people will have an idea of how sort of small the the number of people is or are that uh, are RH negative. In the United States, um, the the figure of RH negatives is roughly around, depending on the statistics and who you ask, but it's roughly around about 12 to 15 percent of the Caucasian population um, is RH negative. It's roughly around about eight or nine in African Americans and only about one or two percent in Asian Americans. And so, in that sense, it is a small body of the population. But the big question is, we're all, you know, we're all Homo sapiens, and we all have this lineage that goes back, you know, to the dawn of time when the very, very earliest, extremely primitive, sort of semi-ape human creatures started to develop millions of years ago. If the theory of evolution is correct, why is it that there should even be any of us who? don't contain that particular rhesus factor. You know, we're all homo sapiens, so why is it that some of us should be different? And that's the big question, that things like evolution don't, you know, they're not able to explain rationally in terms of why a few of us should be different to the rest of us. So can you tell us the theory that the RH negatives are the result of the ET-based genetic manipulation? Yeah, well, this sort of goes back to um, the Cro-Magnon men, uh, or people, I should say, excuse me, of um, sort of 35 to 40,000 years ago. And um, I'll explain how we get there. But I mentioned that you know, a very small percentage of the population um, is RH negative, but there are certain parts of the world where the figures are significantly higher. And the, the best example is with the Basque people of Spain. That's B-A-S-Q-U-E. And the Basque people who also live in portions of France, their figures over varying years have gone from sort of 45% to 60% RH negative. You know, that, that's like more than half the population. 
are Rh negative. And what's interesting is that the Basque people are very unique in the sense they, they look noticeably different to the rest of us and the rest of the people in Europe. They have sort of heavier brows, a sort of far more powerful um, looking jawline. Um, they're bulkier in, in sort of a, like a muscular sense. And they have their own unique language in Europe, which is totally unlike any other European language. You know, I'm, I'm originally from England, but you can find in like the French language, German language, certain words which are very close to, you know, their English equivalents. But the, the Basque people, they have no, um, their language has no connections with not just any other language in Europe, but any other language anywhere, period. And um, what's also interesting is that the area in which the Basque people proliferate today is the same exact area where Cro-Magnon Man lived 35, 40,000 years ago. And other places where um, the Cro-Magnons lived um, are also high in Rh-negative levels. And this has given rise to the, the probably correct theory that Cro-Magnon Man was exclusively Rh-negative. And, um, and again, this brings forth the question, why is it that this one particular early human was, was very different to, say, for example, Neanderthal Man, or some of the earlier type of humans that, you know, clearly... We don't, we're not seeing evidence of them being Rh negative. So in that sense, the big question then becomes, why is it the, uh, that the uh, Cro-Magnons were so different? What made them special? And um, what's interesting is that, you know, if you look at the historical record, they, the Cro-Magnons surfaced under unusual circumstances. That's to say they pretty much surfaced out of nowhere. Um, not literally overnight, but in terms of how, you know, time progresses and history progresses, it was a quick period. And they were highly evolved. You know, I think a lot of people think of cave, so-called cavemen. They think of somebody dressed in, you know, bear skins and a club in one hand and dragging his wife back to the cave by the hair in the other hand. You know, that's the image people have of cavemen when you're, you know, at school or a kid or whatever. But it's actually just a great, sort of disservice to Cro-Magnon Man because they were highly evolved. Their brains were actually bigger than ours. Um, they were skilled artists. If you look at some of the cave paintings in France, for example, I mean, they easily rival anything you would see um, in an art gallery or a museum today. We know from uh, artifacts that have been found that they played and obviously enjoyed music. Um, their remains have been found on isolated islands, which suggests something really astonishing that they had boats of some sort you know to what extent and how advanced they were we don't know so all of this totally sort of throws out of the window this idea of sort of the club wielding caveman you know sitting around a, a fire in a you know a cold damp cave or whatever they, they weren't anything like that and they had traditional sort of burial um traditions not not like ours but similar you know they clearly understood death and its implications and everything else um and the big question is how is it they became so evolved and so different and that leads us back to or even further back to the sort of the, the beginning of all this with the so-called anunnaki oh yes the anunnaki so how does the legendary anunnaki fit into this story well that's a good question <laughs> um the the story itself i mean you know, the, the Anunnaki, um, it's like a lot of 
um, I guess, you know, old legends, stories, texts, manuscripts. You know, you can interpret these accounts in different ways. And that's why, you know, in the whole ancient astronaut movement, you have interpretation of religious texts that somebody will place, you know, in a definitively um, religious angle and somebody else will place it in an extraterrestrial angle. And that's what certainly happened with the stories of the Anunnaki, who were sort of at the heart of the culture, the history and the law of the Bab ancient Babylonians, the Sumerians and the Assyrians. Um, and this is, this is collectively known as the Mesopotamian culture. And it's actually in today um, what is now southern Iraq. And um, that's where the, the stories of the Anunnaki predominantly come from. And they were essentially sort of higher supernatural entities that came down and, you know, helped the, the development of the human race. And, um, and that's why you can, you know, it, it quite easily, as I point out in the book, you can easily look at these, the translations and the original text and place all of this into the context of a visiting highly advanced extraterrestrial species manipulating the human race and upgrading it and so on. Now, according to um, most of the people who've sort of looked into the legends of the Anunnaki, and predominantly people like Zachariah Sitchin, um, they take the view that this upgrading of one particular type of human, which was probably Cro-Magnon Man, uh, wasn't done necessarily for our benefit. The theory uh, that many people in this field adhere to is the idea that they came here to create a slave race with the intent of essentially turning the earth into a factory, you know, for their re own resources. And so, in other words, they needed a slave race to do all the work for them. And so that uh, required the upgrading of the already existing but very primitive um, humanoids that, you know, uh, lived on the plains of Africa millions of years ago. We've just had this new story come in, which you may have seen uh, just within the last week, of another type of early humanoid that's been um, discovered. So, you know, the but if you look at some of these original sort of proto-humans, we're talking about something three feet tall, small, and and pretty probably you know intelligent but certainly not on a par with the Cro-Magnons or the Neanderthals and so that uh, takes us down the path of the Anunnaki genetically altering as I said pre-existing entities to essentially become that slave race that then develops into the Cro-Magnons. So in, in what ways do the RH negatives differ from the rest of the population? Oh, well, that's a good question because there's actually uh, a number of significant ways. Um, there's, there are the physical differences, which I'll talk about, but there are also um, sort of psychological and spiritual um, and metaphysical differences as well, which, which I'll get into. But um, for the most part, being RH negative actually isn't a problem. And in many respects, it's a plus because studies show that um, typically RH negatives have slightly lower than normal blood pressure. Now, you know, if your blood pressure goes a bit too low, whether through, you know, illness or it's just how it is, you know, or sometimes people stand up quickly and you go a bit lightheaded, that's because, you know, your blood pressure may be a li bit, little bit low and so you feel sort of 
dizzy for, for a few moments. Um, but if your blood pressure is slightly below the normal, which is roughly around about 120 over 80, if yours is sort of like 115 over 75, that's really good, you know, in terms of combating things like heart disease and strokes, etc. And the RH negatives typically have slightly lower than normal blood pressure, slightly lower than normal blood, uh, excuse me, uh, pulse rate. And um, so in other words, um, you know, that's in their benefit. There's also good evidence that they are able to combat viruses and bacteria better than um, RH positives can. So this kind of suggests that they may have been genetically refined in the distant past to you know, if you're going to have a slave race, you want it to be healthy and fit. So you would potentially refine it and develop it to where, you know, it was sort of better than the original, so to speak. So that might explain that. Now, one of the other issues which is intriguing is that um, every year, um, you know, a small percentage of the population is actually born with an extra vertebra in their back. And, um, you know, it's actually not a, a big issue. I mean, most people... I wouldn't even know they've got an extra vertebra unless they had spinal surgery and the doctor happened to tell them. You know, most people might live their entire lives not even knowing they've got an extra vertebra. But what's intriguing is that within the RH negatives, the number of um, RH negatives who have an extra vertebra is actually quite significantly higher than the rest of the population. And this actually brings us to one of the most famous um, alien abduction stories, if not the most famous, the uh, Betty and Barney Hill case of 1961. And Betty and Barney Hill were a couple um, who lived in New Hampshire and in September 61 were driving home from a holiday in Canada. And they had sort of a, this one of the very earliest classic abduction experiences, saw a strange light, seemed to turn into a craft, they got closer saw these beings looking down at them through windows in the vehicle and then things started to get hazy and then they found when they got home a couple of hours of time was missing they began to have strange dreams which then became sort of stressful nightmares and and eventually they decided to have regressive hypnosis now bear in mind this issue of the extra vertebra in the abductees and things like this and the rh negatives it's interesting that Barney Hill, when he was undergoing hypnosis, said that when he was on board the craft, the aliens that were with him kept running their fingers down his spine, and he felt that with hindsight, they were counting his vertebra. Now, this was like 1962, and certainly nobody back in 1962 was talking about alien... Well, the alien abduction phenomenon didn't even exist back then, or it wasn't known about, I should say. Um, but nobody was talking about people meeting aliens and having extra vertebra and all this. That only came out in the last couple of years. But it's interesting that Barney Hill was talking about this as one of the early famous abductees, talking about this in 1962. And as I said at the very beginning of the show, there are people who are RH negative um, who feel drawn to the UFO subject, even if they don't have conscious recollection of any UFO experiences, they still feel driven to find out about it. So it's almost as, it's not just the physical differences, it's almost something about alien life and all the concepts of it, etc., and the implications are somehow encoded and deeply embedded in the subconsciousnesses of the, um, of the RH negatives. Wow. So... 
the abduction phenomena today is really linked to this RH negative controversy. Uh, do you have any stories of people that um, that you would like to share that have have been abducted that are RH negative? Do you do you have any um, examples of that? Yeah, I actually have sort of two entire chapters in the book, which you know the book is sort of it, it goes historically from the distant past through you know a couple of thousand years ago Babylonian times then through the middle ages and you know then the 20th century and to the present day and i've got two chapters that deal with um people who predominantly women who were abducted and who were rh negative and interestingly enough in many of the cases they weren't taken on board ufo's but they reported or remembered being taken to sort of underground installations or bases in some cases places that actually seem more like um, natural caverns deep underground and caves where, you know, creating this implication that perhaps that where some of these entities might have permanent bases on the planet but, but deep below the ground. And they may make the use of you know, natural caverns and things like this. Um, and a number of the people I spoke to, the RH negatives, told very similar stories um, of being taken by being essentially abducted um, and being shown these sort of hybrid babies and hybrid children that the so-called aliens um, wanted them to interact with. And the the implication was that the these, the so-called greys lack the ability to have sort of an emotional bond even with their own offspring or their semi-offspring if they're sort of like a hybrid between us and them. And so they they use um, the abductees as sort of a, a vessel, if you like, to try and create a bond. And so I got a number of stories like that. But what I found really interesting was, um, again, something I talk about, I think there's about five or six cases in the book, where the women had had these abduction experiences, but then afterwards they were re-abducted, not, but not by aliens, but what sounds almost like a, a rogue arm of government or the military, not sort of the, you know, the regular known Army, Navy, Air Force or the government, but some sort of shadow agency that operated outside of government. And they were actually sort of, in some cases, quite aggressively grilled and interrogated and ask lots, lots of questions about the nature of their blood. Are you RH negative? Did the aliens ask you any questions about blood? And this, as I point out in the book, this sort of suggested to me that somebody, not, I honestly don't think it really is the regular government that's doing this. I think it is like shadow groups and black projects that work outside of governments and the, you know, the regular government, the elected government knows nothing about them. But I think there is somebody who knows about this, and they may not have all the answers. And I think the questions they ask the abductees reflect that they don't have all the answers. But they know that there's something special about the blood of the abductees, and they're trying to figure it out. And the way they're trying to do it is by, is by interviewing and interrogating the abductees. So, you know, these are interesting patterns like the underground components, the military abductions, the alien abductions and both sets of abductions all focusing on the blood angle and the genetics and, and the hybrids and so on. Yeah. So is it true that numerous powerful people in government and royalty are RH negative? Yeah, that's actually true. Uh, I mean, the, the whole negative line runs straight through the British royal family. 
um, a number of U.S. presidents over the years uh, are, have been RH negative, and certainly the most infamous of all RH negatives is, well, or was, I should say, Lee Harvey Oswald, who, you know, changed the course of history, if it was him who changed the course of history. Um, what's interesting as well is that Lee Harvey Oswald's wife, Marina, is also, uh, she's still alive, you know, she's, she's RH negative. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, probably the most uh, visible example is the British royal family. And, and I talk about this in the book from the perspective of, I mean, one of the big things about, we sort of first have to note is that with the Anunnaki, most of the stories suggest that when they were done with the earth and its resources, etc., they left. And, but, you know, if it was like us, we might want to leave some sort of, remnant of our society behind you know still on the planet that that we conquered if that's the right term to use and so i wonder if there are people for example like with the royals who have some deeper understanding than we do of how important to them at least to the big power players in the world how important the it is to continue this ancient elite bloodline um and in other words it even if the Anunnaki, the extraterrestrials left, in a strange way, they would still be sort of ruling by, by proxy, so to speak. You know, they would have their closest, um, you know, living equivalents still sort of ruling the planet, you know, via powerful families like the Royal Secret Societies, all invested with this particular bloodline. And as I said, in a strange way, still by proxy ruling the planet, even though they're not you know, literally here, I, because I kind of take the view that, you know, the greys clearly aren't the Anunnaki, but I speculate on the ability that the the greys could have been some sort of like biological robots left behind as like a caretaker race to continue the experiments, you know, but they may not even be sort of self-aware entities. They could be just almost like, you know, worker drones or, you know, soldier ants or worker bees, you know, in the colony just performing the same tasks over and over again. Yeah. You know, I heard somewhere that Nikola Tesla was RH negative. Have you heard anything about that? Um, that I'm not 100% sure about, no. But, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me because, as I said, the, you know, certain elite and powerful figures um are RH negative. I mean, another example I talk about in the book is how a lot of leading figures within the UFO field are RH negative. And, you know, bear, and this is important. Bear in mind that much of the story I talk about in the book um, focuses on, like, the whole ancient astronaut scenario. Well, it just so happens that the world's most famous ancient astronaut author, Eric Von Daniken, is RH negative, um, <laughs> uh, as is Brad Steiger, who's written extensively on ancient aliens, um, ancient civilizations like Atlantis, mysteries of the past. And this gets into one of the other issues I talk about in the book, the idea of sort of inherited memory, the idea of like something deeply encoded in our subconscious that even though we don't know why, it drives us to look into these issues, and that could be why, you know, with Von Daniken and Brad Steiger, they felt driven to these subjects. Even if they didn't have a full understanding of why they were driven, there could have been something encoded in them, you know, deeply buried inherit inherited memories from the distant past that pushed them that in, in that direction. Now, for people who may be wondering what inherited memories are, it's a controversial area, but it has some validity to it. You know, I mean, most of us, 
we can look at our parents and see where we might have inherited hair color or eye color or the shape of your nose or the shape of your lips or whatever you know we, we all we all do that or you know we all inherit traits physical traits from our parents and and sometimes you know we, we also inherit other traits um, and this brings us to this issue of what's called inherited memory now probably the closest example to this is um, verified experiments that have been undertaken on people when for example someone's had an organ transplant and from somebody else and they start to develop the food cravings that the person whose organ they had transplanted into them that they had those cravings as well lots of stories like that suggesting that some essence of a person is actually is incredibly sad is encoded in an organ and if it's placed in that organ is then placed into your body if they get killed in a car accident part of that person's identity in a strange fashion becomes absorbed by you and the two sort of splice together um and this gets to the heart of inherited memory the idea that literal memories from times gone in the distant past can be inherited you know it's kind of like a dream we've all had dreams where you had a really graphic dream and you wake up when the alarm goes off and you can feel your mind losing that dream you know it starts to quickly go away and after five minutes it's gone you cannot get it back but you know you dream something profound and that's kind of like with the inherited memory the idea that fragments of memories can get passed down through the generations literally in you know in the brain and in some respects you know that may explain why people sometimes have an obsession or a dream or constant dreams about egypt or atlantis and it may explain why people like von daniken and brad steiger were driven to these sort of subjects so there's a lot of you know these implications as well in terms of um you know not just world leaders but other people living today who obviously aren't part of any sort of sinister cabal or anything like that but they feel that this is an area that's important to them so what's the connection between the rh blood factor and the so-called reptilian aliens well yeah i mean this is another important angle and grant it's probably the one angle that's i would say less understood of all because you know the, the big question is who are what or what are the reptilians but there are more than a few cases on record where rh negatives have been abducted by the greys and these large reptilian type creatures have been seen as well and i, t I talk about this in the book and um, and again the reptilian cases i've got they're pretty much all based in underground installations or caverns and caves and things like that um, but you know i'm sure most of you your listeners have heard of the reptilians but for some who may not have they're sort of typically described as humanoid that's to say you know they stand upright on two legs so humanoid in shape but but looking reptilian your reptilian skin um i guess the closest thing you could think of is is like a real life equivalent of something like the creature from the black lagoon or the or the aliens in that old tv series v um that kind of scenario um but the the big question is you know who are the reptilians now there's actually one interesting theory it takes it back to the anunnaki i mean some people who've interpreted the old text have suggested that the anunnaki themselves may have been reptilian um 
Now, if there was some sort of, you know, genetic manipulation between the species, you know, you have all these stories in a lot of ancient texts and, you know, probably most famously, you know, in the Christian Bible, the stories of the gods coming down and, you know, uh, taking human women and then giving birth to these offspring. It's highly unlikely, uh, you know, that a reptile, well, it's impossible for, you know, a reptile to, to mate with a mammal. Um but so in other words, the Anunnaki probably weren't reptilian, but there are some sort of early visitors to the earth, if you like, that acted in a very similar fashion to the Anunnaki, like trying to upgrade and change society and introduce new technologies, is the, the story of Quetzalcoatl. Um, you know, this is sort of a classic example of where we have a very sort of mysterious entity that sort of pops up almost literally from nowhere, and proceeds to insert into sort of society, if you like, um, new concepts, new ideas, um, new technologies, and things like this. And, um, you know, we're, we're essentially talking about, uh, for, again, for people who may not know, uh, Quetzalcoatl is sort of chiefly um, a part of Aztec, ancient Aztec uh, legend, and brought civilization to what were called the Mesoamericans, and supposedly sort of first impacted on the Mesoamericans around about 100 BC. And Quetzalcoatl actually translates as feathered serpent. So, you know, that in itself is intriguing. And um, just a short drive from Mexico City, uh, there's a place called the Temple of the Feathered Serpent. And, um, and as well... I mean, aside from Quetzalcoatl, Mesoamericans, um, they were renowned for sort of worshipping serpent-like deities. Um, so in other words, they have a long history of, of serpent-like gods coming down and, and sort of upgrading their civilizations. So in that sense, today's reptilians may have been the same as the, exactly the same entities as these serpent gods like, like Quetzalcoatl. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So are these black-eyed children and hybrid children part of this controversy? Well, I, I think they actually are. I mean, well, you can look at it from two ways. I mean, I have to admit, there are some black-eyed children stories which seem to have sort of more of like an occult, supernatural aspect to them. But then there are other ones where, you know, they just seem physical, like physical children, but just weird. I mean... Most people um, in the you know the, the sort of things we look into know of the black-eyed children, and uh, it's a phenomenon that has really only sort of surfaced publicly, at least in probably the last six, seven, eight years. But with hindsight, now we've got people coming forward saying, "Well, you know, I saw one of these decades ago, but I didn't really understand, you know, the implications. I just thought it was somebody who got a." you know, a weird genetic disease, but um, people... Is it, is it the, they don't have whites in their eyes, right? They're just black? Yeah, that's right. The, basically, the black-eyed children all pretty much look the same. They they have very white skin. Their eyes are completely black. And when I say completely black, I don't just mean the, the middle part of the eye, the, the white of the eye, everything is totally black. So kind of like the greys in the abductions. And... Um, where it kind of gets sinister is that they try and find ways into people's homes and cars. You know, can we use the telephone? We need to phone our parents. Can you give us some food? You know, we're homeless and hungry. And 
most people get this really weird vibe from them because they typically only turn up at night. They knock on people's doors late at night and they wear these black hoodies. And the, the hoodies often pulled down just about as far as they can get it and they're sort of looking down at their feet all the time, clearly trying to avoid making eye contact for obvious reasons, you know. Um, and But people invariably do notice the eyes and they notice the skin is like the colour of milk. I mean, I'm not joking, you know, they're sort of like white, white. Um, and so people freak out and they don't let them in. You know, this is the last thing they want to do. But it's almost as if occasionally they, the black-eyed children have been able to almost sort of hypnotise or mind control the people to where they actually felt their their sort of self-will was slipping away from them and they just had to use all their strength possible to sort of slam the door and and, and get them out of there, you know. Um, but one of the things I'm, I note is sort of the similarities between the black-eyed children and the men in black. You know, I mean, both the men in black wear black fedoras, black suits, and come out at night and try and force their way into people's homes, and they have this weird-looking skin. The black-eyed children don't wear black fedoras, but they wear black hoodies. You know, their skin's the same colour as the men in black, and they try and get into people's homes. So there's a lot of parallels with the men in black mystery, and um, the men in black and the black-eyed children, you can make a good case that both of those are sort of hybrid-type entities. And, um, you know, we may be looking at something, as strange as it sounds, that the, the, the black-eyed children could be the men in black in child form. You yeah, know, that's, uh, that's exactly what I was going to yeah. ask you. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like they grow up to be men in black. They may well do. I mean, it's a controversial and, you know, intriguing uh, angle to, to focus on. But, I mean, if you look at the timeline from when abductions began to be reported with, with Betty and Barney Hill, you know, with their case, there was the missing time, the sense of being taken on board a craft and, and experimented on or at least um, studied, and there was also, um, back then with Betty and Barney Hill, it was just a vague uh, sort of sense of, a, of like a sexual component to it as well, a reproductive component also. Now, when we got into the 70s, there were cases like the famous um, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker case in Pascagoula, where they were abducted, again, medical experimentation. Uh, there was a degree of a sexual angle to that one as well. Then when we got into the 80s with Bud Hopkins and his book Missing Time and Whitley Strieber's Communion, the whole thing really grew massively. You know, the whole abduction phenomenon became, well, I mean, literally did become a worldwide phenomenon. Everybody heard of alien abductions. Now, in the early 90s, things began to change with these reports of hybrid children, these hybrid babies with wispy hair, um, essentially like growing them in tanks, you know, tanks of fluid. And people would report seeing all these, you know, sort of uh, fetuses essentially growing in, in line after line of tanks, you know, just um, like in a factory kind of environment. And uh, and then sort of 10 years after that, we're starting now to see the rise of the black-eyed children. So it's almost like a trend has sort of subtly developed in the last 50 years in ufology where the abduction phenomenon is changing bit by bit. It's gone from tentative abductions to gene splicing to creating hybrids and then letting them loose in the real world, you know. It makes me think of that movie, Children of the Corn. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, there's a few sort of weird stories like that. I mean, one of the ones I talk about um, in the book was um, 
a famous novel um, written in the in the mid fifties by um, I forget his name now. Anyway, but the John Wyndham, and it was called The Midwich Cuckoos, and it was made into a famous English movie called Village of the Damned, and there was like a sequel called Children of the Damned, and it was basically about something very very similar. These sort of unique children that had. In that, they didn't have totally black eyes, but the centre of their eyes were black and they were pale and they were all had really whitish blonde hair and they could sort of control people's minds. And although it was never made 100% clear, the implication was that they were, were extraterrestrial hybrids, so to speak. And um, so it's interesting, you know, that um, we should be seeing this in the real world too. Right. Well, you know, I spent time with Andre Puarch many, many years ago mm-hmm. and he... He told me about a trip that he took to Mexico, and he had found seven of these black-eyed children, and he worked with them for a period of time. Oh, wow. Yeah, did you ever read anything that, that Andre Puarch wrote about these kids? No, um, I've never read about that at all. I mean, I actually do have his book, which I think is a really good one, The Psychic Mushroom. Um, uh, psychic, excuse me, The Sacred Mushroom. Um, that's a really good book. Um, but... Um, no, I actually don't know about uh, the Black Eyed Children connection. I'm going to have to look that one up. So. Uh, I don't know of any place that I've, I have found. I mean, he sat one day and, and just told mm-hmm. me all about it. I mean, it was a it was a personal conversation that he had wow. mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you go into a little bit uh, about how when a woman gets pregnant and if she's RH, uh, oh, yeah. what happens uh, to the to the fetus? Can you give us a little description of of the internal workings of a mother getting pregnant? Yeah, this is, again, another sort of really weird, and it can be quite potentially hazardous issue as well, but it is a strange one. And, it, again, it demonstrates the the uniqueness of this whole RH-negative blood issue. Now, if, say, for example, you've got two parents and they're both RH-negative, like, for example, Lee Harvey Oswald and his wife, it doesn't cause any issues because both of them are RH-negative. Now... Let's say, for example, you know, you've got um, a mother and a fa- or a man and a woman. Um, one's RH negative, one's RH positive. It doesn't really matter which is which. Um, and let's say, you know, the woman gets pregnant and the fetus is developing. Now, the the fetus obviously, you know, is, gets its nourishment from the mother. But a lot of people don't know that the the blood of the unborn fetus and the mother's blood actually don't cross. You know, the, the mother's the, the baby's blood does, is not created or taken from the mother's bloodstream. You know, it sounds in simple terms, you would expect that to be the case, but they act, the two actually don't, uh, don't cross. Now, if, say, for example, as I said, you've got um, one of the, you know, one of the parents who is negative, one's positive, and let's say during the course of the pregnancy, um, you know, sometimes the, the fetus has to be examined. And so they go have this process, amniocentesis. You know, it, it's essentially, you know, the insertion of a needle. Um, there's actually several different um, procedures that are very similar in terms of using needles, you know, to in, insert during, during pregnancy and that allow for you know, the extraction of blood from the fetus. It doesn't hurt the baby, you know, it's just it's just a very delicate process. But if during that process, by mistake, you know, as a needle's been extracted, if some of the baby's blood, let's say the baby is RH negative and the mother is RH positive, if, you know, a little bit of the negative blood gets into the mother's bloodstream, which actually does happen, um, there are now medicines to combat this. But what if that happens and the two blood 
uh, bloods cross, the mother's um, immune system, and I don't mean any pun intended when I say this, it actually views the the unborn fetus as like alien, as something different, as something that has to be gotten rid of. And the mother's immune system, I'm not exaggerating, literally tries to kill the fetus. It, it views it as something that, you know, should not be in her body. Um, and as I said, fortunately, I mean, medicine has thankfully got a cure for this. And, you know, it's actually uh, an easily combated thing. But, however, if, say, for example, you know, a woman doesn't get the treatment, worst case scenario, you know, the baby can die. Even if the baby doesn't die, one of the major problems is um, acute anemia. You know, anemia can be dangerous at the best of times in adults. And, um, you know, it's sort of most prevalent in adults, in like, you know, people have anorexia or something like that, or somebody who's starving on a, you know, starvation on a desert island, that kind of thing. Um, you know, so we don't see it that often, but the, the mother's bod immune system can actually provoke acute anemia, which can cause major problems, you know, while the fetus is developing. Um, and the, the other big problem is that if a woman has had problems with this crossover between the bloodlines while she's pregnant with her first pregnancy, doctors actually recommend very often that a woman doesn't have other pregnancies because the, every, with every successive pregnancy, when this has happened once, the mother's body finds more and more ways, more stronger ways to to kill the fetus. So in other words, every every subsequent pregnancy becomes more and more dangerous in terms of the effect it can have on the baby. But don't they have ways now to correct that? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's what I said. It's actually a very... Um, easily combated and um, that's why you know when uh, a woman becomes pregnant you know that there are actually checks done to see what the different blood groups are and it's actually just a case of you know t having a particular drug uh, and it combats it immediately you know so it's just the, the only prop time it surfaces um, down the line as I said is if you know blood needs to be taken from the fetus, you know, or a cell to check for something, and then there's a mistake made, and you know the two bloodlines cross. That's when there's an issue. But in today's world, for the most part, it isn't because you know that they can be given the drugs immediately to prevent this um, situation from occurring at all. So when people um, go to get their marriage license, are they required to uh, do a blood test to see if there are Rh negative? Uh. I'm not entirely sure on that. I mean, I mean, how are they keeping track of all these people? There's what you who? said. There's like 35 million of them here in the United States. So how do they how do they keep track of all these Rh negatives? Uh, who do you mean by them? The, the government. Oh, well, you know, I mean, I, I mean, it's it's one of these situations where I mean, you know, in today's world. I mean, I'm talking hypothetically now, of course, but I mean, everybody's medical records are computerized. Um, I mean, it wouldn't be difficult for somebody to get into, you know, private medical records. I mean, we know all this stuff that happened when we still don't know who really did it, but, you know, the defense, defense departments, you know, millions of defense departments, employees had their personal records, you know, hacked into. Um, in today's world, it wouldn't be difficult to to find out, 
you know, who is RH negative and who's RH positive if you're able to access, you know, the relevant computerized files. I mean, it would have been much difficult, much more difficult decades ago when it was still, you know, good old paper files in a filing cabinet, you know, but those those days are largely gone now. So, um, you know, it, it, it makes things easier technology-wise, space-wise, but privacy, from the perspective of privacy, I mean, sure. yeah. you've got the right equipment, you know, and you can get into somebody's database you've got everything you need to just a, a keystroke you know yeah it's over isn't it privacy is over yeah so what do you think the reaction would be if it were proved that significant numbers of the population are not entirely human but are the products of ancient genetic manipulation well you know i think it could go one of several ways i mean other than the people who we talked about earlier, like the, the elite power brokers on the planet and people like that. And, you know, I actually do believe they have at least some understanding of, the, of why to them this ancient elite lineage is important and why it needs to be preserved. Um, and I think that could have sort of a lot of sinister connotations to it as well. However, you know, the average member of the public who is RH negative, you know, it's not like they're all, or any of them, are sort of having middle-of-the-night secret phone calls and plotting and planning the day they all take over. You know what I mean? It's not like that at all. Um, and it's not like we're all going to wake up one morning and find the RH negatives have suddenly changed and they're all going to be attacking us, you know, like a real-life walking dead, you know, where we wake up and there's the population starting to change into something else. No, it's nothing like that. It's just, for the most part, RH negatives... Um, you know, a lot of them are driven to the UFO subject, they're abductees, they're contactees, but they're not, you know, they're nothing to be frightened of or to be worried about. However, I do think, you know, people who, sort of ignorant, stupid people who just, you know, hear something and then go totally over the top, they might cause a few problems. I mean, one of the things I sort of use as an analogy in the book, you know, I live just outside of Dallas, I'm about 20 minutes drive outside of Dallas and I'm sure everybody listening to the show will remember just not too long ago when we had that the Ebola break outbreak and um, you know we had the guy who flew into the US died and two of the nurses looking after him they went down with it as well well I mean as I said just living 20 miles outside of Dallas when all that happened I mean, I remember reading the stuff that was on the internet, and you can still see it, where people were screaming that Dallas has got to be cordoned off and emergency laws have got to be put into place and the city needs to be quarantined and all this. And it, and it did sound like something straight out the walking dead, you know, invoking emergency management powers. And then there was all talk about martial law. Well, and what happened? Yeah, the guy died. Um... And the two nurses recovered, and that was the end of the Ebola scare. But at the time, you know, there were all these just totally over-the-top demands for Dallas to be shut down and in lockdown, and um, and people in Dallas thought it was just bizarre, you know. I mean, it wasn't stopping people going to work or anything like that. Um, but we had this over-the-top response, and I think that would be the... I think, you know, I don't think we have anything to fear from the... RH negatives, and I don't think they have anything to fear from most of us. The only ones who they have to be fearful of are not 
extraterrestrials, but uninformed, ignorant people who aren't willing to, not, you know, embrace the fact that, well, yeah, maybe a small percentage is extraterrestrial, but that doesn't mean they're a threat, which, you know. But then again, other people like Dr. David Jacobs, who wrote a book called The Threat, you know, he views this whole um, hybridization issue, if you like, with, you know, the hybrid children and abductions. He views it from a very sinister perspective. He thinks it is like a literal infiltration to take us over. Now, but that's what we're not talking about the RH negative people with that. He's talking about sort of strange looking hybrids where they're trying to make them more and more refined and look more like us. Um, so that's, you know, there's a big difference between David Jacobs's research on hybrids and regular people who are RH negative. So, but I, but I can understand, unfortunately, you know, with the way people have stupid prejudices that they could apply that to this subject as well. So do do a lot of the RH negative um, people have psychic abilities, high high intuition, and are they kind of like what we call the star people? Yeah, they are a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of them are. In, I've had a sort of lot of like synchronicities. That's something that's quite typical of. Um, RH negatives, they get a lot of synchronicities in their lives, which, are, you know, I always tell people, because I get a lot of synchronicities, and I always tell people you should follow, <coughs> excuse me, synchronicities, because, you know, you don't know where they might lead. And if, if you get strange synchronicities, I always think that it's something is trying to guide you down a particular path. And so it's important to try to understand what the synchronicity means or implies to you as a person. So, yeah, the RH negatives get a lot of those. As I said, a lot of them feel driven to the UFO subject, metaphysical subjects like mind, body, spirit, um, things like this. So, you know, it's sort of a, like a unique group of people in many different ways. You know, it makes me wonder about the stories that we hear about Jesus, Mary Magdalene, going to the mm -hmm. southern part of France and being yeah. the Basque people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right, close to the Basque people, you know, and, and again, you can talk about, you know, the sort of the ancient bloodlines, the holy bloodline. Right. Um, and, I mean, if you look into most ancient religions, you find that, that blood was revered. It was sort of like, um, it wasn't just a life force, it was sort of perceived as being something extremely important, um, as if ancient man knew something about blood that, you know, made it stand out from, you know, your skin or your organs or whatever. The, the blood was almost sort of, almost like supernaturally magical or something like that to so many different cultures. How about the blood sacrifice that would happen at these volcanoes? Well, again, you know, I mean, people think of blood sacrifices. I, I think most prob people probably think, well, it's a sacrificial event. They think of the sacrifice. A lot of people don't realize that you're right. The, the whole point of the sacrifice is the blood. Um, you know, so in other words, it's not just a case of sacrificing a person to the gods. It's a case of the sacrifice being focused around the matter of the person's blood rather than just, you know, their bodily form. And I think that's important, you know, and we have to sort of ask the question as to why it is that cultures all around the world have sort of revered blood, have legends surrounding it, view it as something sacred. It's, you know, it's it's beyond just it being the life force of us, you know. Um, 
it seems to take on almost like a like a magical um, aspect to it almost. Right. Where do you see this research and, and story going in the future? Um, well, you know, as, as I said at the very beginning, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because, although, you know, a few articles online aside, it hadn't really been tackled to any great degree before. So my hope would be that, you know, that people would look into this further and and use it sort of a springboard to take the research further. It's kind of like... Um, you know, you look at books on Roswell. You know, the first book came out in 1980, and since then there have now been like 15 or 16 books on Roswell, um, all of which over time have added more and more data to the case as more and more old-timers have been found and, you know, more research has been done. So I would hope that the same thing will happen here, that, you know, the book can act as a springboard for other people who are interested to who and who maybe you know listening to this right now who are rh negative who've had significant ufo experiences it might drive one of them to think well you know i'll write my own book you know but just about me you know about their own personal experiences as an rh negative i mean i think that would be a really cool book to have one you know perhaps the next book written obviously not by me again but by someone who is an rh negative and who is an abductee and they do like a very personal um first person account of their experiences and that may then encourage other people to do the same so hopefully you know it have like a spiral in effect and the more people read about it and listen to it um the more people it'll encourage to look into it and hopefully that'll provide us more answers I don't know. I have a feeling you're going to do Bloodline of the Guards, Gods Part 2. I have a feeling you're going <laughs> well, to do another book on this. To, to be honest, I don't very often sort of do sequels, if ever. In fact, I don't think I've ever done a sequel, mainly because I, you know, I like to sort of do a story to the best of my ability, put it out there for people to see. And then, you know, hopefully people, as I said, will use it as a springboard to look into things for themselves. You know, I, I kind of feel that that's sort of my role is to research something, as I said, to the best I can, tell the story and put it out for people to see. And then, you know, then I'll move on to another one. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I've written three books on the men in black, but so in, I'm saying on the one hand, you know, I haven't really done sequels, but they're sort of standalone different books. But, I mean, I, I can easily understand and and guess that in the future, you know, we will see more books coming out on this subject, purely and simply because the more that people know about it, the more people are going to look into their own backgrounds and find this and find that. And they're going to talk about it, and then they'll become the subject of, you know, the next book or something like that from, from whoever. So. But you're going to get so many emails. You're going to get so much correspondence. That it's going well, to be overwhelming, that, and you'll have to just do another book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually, you know, what's happened with the three books I've done on the Men in Black is that people have read the books and contacted me because of, um, you know, their own experiences. So, um, I mean, it, it could happen. You know, if I felt, I, I, mean, I always feel that if I'm going to do a sequel, um, it would be important to be able to add something new. I mean, I wouldn't want to just sort of do a, a sequel that essentially just told the stories but didn't necessarily, you know, um, develop the the issue or the mystery. 
You know, I, I think it, you need not just to relate the stories. We need to sort of figure out who's doing this and why and who's in charge of this and how is it the military or an arm of the military seems to know about the RH negative angle. In other words, you know, we need to be able to... Uh, I mean, I don't have any issue or problems with a book that is just like a collection of of witness accounts. I think that can be fun to, you know, and cool to read and interesting to read. But I think also we need to sort of have the the sort of the investigative approach as well to, to taking the story further also. Aren't you aren't you coming out with another book pretty soon, a Men in Black book? Yeah, well, actually, this is this is out right now. It, it's called, uh, interestingly enough, Men in Black. <laughs> Very original title. <laughs> the uh, the first book I did on the Men in Black in 2006 was called On the Trail of the Source of Spies, and then 2010 was the real Men in Black, and um, the the new one, which is just called Men in Black, has just come out literally this week. Came out like three days ago. And um, the the new book is sort of a combination of um, there's about 35 chapters, some 32, 35 chapters, something like that. Um, roughly about two thirds of them are witness accounts, people who've, who've come forward, you know, who know that I do this research and have told their stories. Um, and then the remaining probably um, just over a third of the entries in the book are papers by well-known people in ufology who are offering their theories and ideas on who the men in black might be and you know what the answer is to them so in other words this is what i'm talking about rather than just having a book of stories you know witness accounts blend it with you know sort of investigative research that people in the field have done for example Getting back to the black-eyed children, David Weatherly, who wrote the book Black-Eyed Children, um, David has done a, a chapter for the book on, for example, um, the parallels between the men in black um, and the black-eyed children that we briefly touched upon. But David's done a, a full-length paper for the book on that. And Brad Steig has also done one about his own experiences with the MIB. Uh, Micah Hanks, uh, who's a well-known writer, Mike has done um, his own um, report on the Man in Black as well. So what I've tried to do is, you know, share the most interesting Man in Black cases I've got over the last um, 10 years or so that haven't been published so far and blend them with sort of investigative journalistic type papers from people like David Weatherly and Brad Steiger. Well, and you took my story, too. My story's in there. Yes, yes. There's a certain radio host who's in the book as well, who's a million <laughs> miles away. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so your story's in there, and, I, I, you know, people find it fascinating because there's so many... You know, what's so fascinating about the Men in Black is, mystery is that there's so many different angles and theories. You know, you have the extraterrestrial angle, you have the idea that they could be time travellers because they wear these old-style suits and old-style fedora hats. Um, but then you have some of the more sinister theories that, you know, because there are a lot of Men in Black accounts where there are clear parallels between the Men in Black and sort of paranormal activity, occult activity, what some people might even call demonic activity. Um, you know, there are cases where people have been visited by the men in black, but they, there's been no UFO component, but they've been um, dabbling in Ouija boards. And it's as if, you know, they've opened a portal or a door and then they've literally allowed the men in black through. So, you know, there's, uh, there's certainly from my perspective, there could be 
even a couple of different categories of men in black. You know, they may not all be from one particular thing, but they're about as far away as you can get from, you know, the movie version, you know, the whole Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith secret agents. They're not. They're something, you know, they're something... However you want to turn the paranormal, whether you view it as extraterrestrial or supernatural or occult or whatever, the men in black come from that domain. They're, they're not government agents at all. They're just high strangeness. High strangeness. Yeah, that's exactly what they are. But that's what makes, you know, the investigation so intriguing because, you know, it's so unusual and it can go in so many different directions as well. Right. So um, I'd like to um, turn, turn you over to Ariel now, the switchboard because we probably have some people that are um, sitting by waiting to okay. uh, talk to you. So I have really enjoyed um, this conversation, and we'll talk later. So back to you, Ariel. Thanks, Lavender. Hey, Ariel. Hello. Oh, this has just been fascinating. I've been on the edge of the chair here. <laughs> oh, cool, um, thanks. Yeah. Um, we do have uh, a few minutes to answer any any questions or comments from our listeners. If you're already on the switchboard, you'll need to press 1 so we know that you want to come on the air. And if you're listening on the computer, you need to pick up the phone, dial 917-889-8292, and then press 1 once you get in. And, um, well, we've got people already um, wanting to talk to you, so as soon as they get um, done with our producers, we'll bring them on the air. But um, I was wondering about more, if you have more um, physical attributes. You talked about the extra vertebra and, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe low blood pressure um, and some um, non-physical kind of traits. But are there other physical traits that you have seen um, patterns with? Um, well, th- there are a couple, yeah. I mean, one of them is uh, a lot of the RH negatives have trouble um, tolerating a lot of high temperatures and direct sunlight. Um, there are many cases of RH negatives um, developing sort of hives and rashes, particularly and primarily on the neck, shoulders, and upper arms. You know, I mean, literal hives. I don't just mean like getting sunburned. Um, you know, like a rash, and then after a while it goes down as, as their body cools down. But a lot of cases like that, um, again, as if there's something about their makeup that makes them, you know, unfortunately to not be able to tolerate uh, direct high temperatures and, you know, scalding sunlight, etc. Um, and as you said, you know, the, there's the, the low blood pressure, the slightly lower uh, than normal pulse rate, the differences um, in the number of vertebrae, um, those are actually the, the sort of the main areas I can think of. Um, but, you know, I think it's intriguing that there are, you know, there's this issue of so many of them sharing sort of deep fascination for UFOs, for sort of metaphysic, metaphysical issues, mind, body, spirit, um, and, you know, and also a lot of people, I forgot to mention this, a lot of people who fall into this category as well, you know, they have sort of this innate um, caring, like a sense of caring for the planet. You know, they, a lot of them get involved in like ecological um, issues and things like that as well. That's fascinating. Well, we have the switchboard lighting up, and, and I have to say that we... 
we may not be able to get to everyone, so if you could keep your your questions um, brief, that might um, help us get through uh, so everyone gets a turn. So uh, right now we are going to um, be talking to, oh, I don't have a name here, um, area code 405-361. You are on the air and you have a question for Nick. Yes, hello. Um, hey, this is Lynn. How are you, Lavendar? And Nick, I'm fascinated. I am O negative and of a large family with one other sibling with an RH negative. A mother who saw UFOs in the 1950s and a family of fascinated um, observers and all of the characteristics that you would have described apply wow. to this sibling and I. The rest Oh, hang on. Uh, sorry, Lynn, your microphone just shut itself off. The rest of the family? Not... Oh, the the rest of the family, not not at all the same dynamics with blood pressure and all of the things that you've mentioned. Well, that, well that's interesting to know because, you know, I, I like to get that kind of feedback because it demonstrates, again, for the listeners who might be new to all this, that you know, the, all of this is actually vind- can be vindicated. You know, so many people like yourself uh, have the you know the the guts to come forward and say, hey, you know, I fall into this category and I've got this and I've got that. So. Yeah, and certainly have been with Lavendar on trips that that I'm sure the this this was the impetus behind wanting to go. Mm-hmm. Well, again, you know, that's an important point. I mentioned, you know, I mentioned how people feel driven towards these subjects and to do things and, you know, do this, do that, read about this. And, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, you, you've sort of perfectly described um, what so many other people who fall into the same category have told me, which which is cool. You know. Well, and I, I look forward to your, to your next book on this subject because... <laughs> I agree with Lavendar. There will be many of us very interested. Oh, well, I guess uh, I may just have to go ahead and do it then. So. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank well, you so much. And Lavendar and, and Ariel, thank you. Thanks. Oh, you're so welcome, and it's good to hear from you, Lynn. And uh, nice everybody, hear from you. make sure you pick up a copy of Nick's book, Bloodline of the Gods. So thanks so much for oh, calling, yeah. Lynn, and we're going to try to... Kind of get through thank our you. callers um, as expeditiously as possible. So thanks, Lynn. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Okay, so our next caller is um, from the two three nine area. Two three nine, you are on the air, and you have um, a question about MIB. Yeah, I have a lot of uh, MIB activity. Even the helicopters would come down on me. And I was um, making organ at the time. That's the crystals and the copper and, and putting it around to change the energy from negative to positive. If you know about Reich, you yeah. know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Wilhelm Reich. So yeah. were they really, re- was all that activity related to what I was doing? Because, like, they would... Sometimes mm-hmm. three helicopters would chase me while I was out, and they would motion for me to close my garage door, so that way they would know the next time my car was coming out. 
But there was like a clone looking type, and it's that black eyed person, pasty white skin, pulled in and out of my driveway every day, expressionless face. They all look the same, is why I call them clones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just a lot of you already know the bizarre activity, so I don't need to tell anybody the bizarre activity. But my question was first about, I thought it was our government. But you said no, so then I thought to ask you, was it related to the Oregon, place in the Oregon? Well, yeah. I mean, this. I'm sorry, what was your name again? Diana. Diana. Well, yeah, well, Diana, basically, it gets a little bit complicated in the sense that, you know, the real men in black, they they clearly aren't anything to do with the government. You know, the ones you talk about, like the pale and pasty and looking like clones. You know, they're clearly something different. Um, but what we get is sort of this, like this shadow group of people, like the ones who have, have abducted the RH negatives. And I think they're the same ones who are sort of flying the, the black helicopters. Now, I think why why it sometimes gets confusing is because people see the, the sort of the weirder men in black that you talk about in the same locations as the black helicopters. So people think they must be connected. But what I think is happening is that, you know, people are having experiences with these sort of real weirder men in black and this military faction, if you like, wants to know what's going on. So they keep tabs on people such as yourself. So in other words, you may be being watched by sort of the military angle of things, but you may also be having interaction with these the weirder clone based ones, you know, and the military's trying to find out, well, who are they? You know, what do they want? So um but it looks like it's all part of the same phenomenon, but they're sort of competing areas. But I mean, I've got sort of so many reports where people talk about, you know, these men in black looking pale and their skin looks like it's you know, they've just overdosed well, on Botox but they do or point something things at you. They do point things that look like cell phones mm-hmm. from the sky and from their car. Mm-hmm. Totally expressionless as they're pointing yeah. at you while they're you're going, and they always know what corner you're going to be turning at. Back then, <laughs> well, this actually now, that, that actually, was 2007. I'm not RH negative. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I mean that sort of gets to the issue of like the hybrids. The idea that some people believe that the men in black are sort of hybrids that have been sort of refined over time, and now they're sort of operating in our environment. You know, the idea that as bizarre as it sounds, these sort of semi-human-looking entities are actually sort of within our society, mingling amongst us and infiltrating us, and even driving around in our, you know, in our vehicles. Um, and they look, if you saw them on the street, you might think, and you look closely, you might think, well, that person looks a bit odd. You know, you might think they've got some strange genetic issue going on. It may not be. You know, they may be trying to see how often they can get walk amongst us and not get noticed. And perhaps the less they get noticed, that means they're doing a good job from their perspective, you know. But okay, um, trying to not be noticed by me. But I'm not doing that anymore, so, yeah. you know. But, already... uh, but, I mean, if you wanted, you know, if you wanted, like, a longer chat, if you, you can always find me at Facebook. I'm always happy, you know, people can send me a mm-hmm. Facebook message if okay. they've got any questions. You know, I'm always happy to uh, to oh, respond. Oh, that would be interesting. So you're Redfern, R-E-D-F-E-R-N? Yeah, Nick Redfern. There are a few Nick okay. Redferns. But, uh, All right. I got there. it. I, I remember, didn't I? Thank you so <laughs> much. <laughs> Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye-bye.
So um, we're going to be talking to Jane, and as soon as I get your microphone open here. Okay, Jane, you are on the air with Nick. Hi there. Hi, Nick. Hi, Lavendar. Hi, Jane. Um, I, my mom and dad uh, were both O negative and the whole family is O negative. And I don't have a direct question. I'm going to buy your book, but I had an experience. Um, I spent some years in Spain. My dad was military Mm -hmm. and I was in Spain when I was probably between uh, six and nine years old, something like that. And I have a vague memory of being somewhere sitting up on a concrete slab of some sort and somebody was doing, like had a syringe in my left thigh. They were doing, if they were extracting or putting something in, but my dad was there, but everybody else, there was a group. It was like a ceremony. It was very strange and nobody was showing their faces. Now, wow. I uh, yeah, I think about this a lot. I have no idea what it means, but I wondered. We were at Torrejon Air Force Base, and uh, do you have any information as far as any activity going on with the military or with any of the RH negative stuff that you've dug up in Spain during the late fifties, early sixties? Um, I've got no, to no. be honest. <laughs> I've got to be honest with you, Jane. I I actually don't have anything from Spain from that period. But, I mean, one thing I, I would say is that, I mean, one of the most sort of significant parts of the book is the fact that, you know, the the highest percentage of um, people in the world uh, who are RH negative are the Basque people who live in, in Spain and portions of France. Um you know, that alone, I think, I mean, stood out for me when you said Spain. You know, I mean, we're talking Well, and I've like, been very attracted yeah. to that. Hugely, I feel like I'm very connected to the, the Jesus Magdalene bloodline. Uh-huh. I mean, very strongly. And the synchronicities you talked about, I have them left and right. Left and right. <laughs> I have synchronicities all the time, but I don't follow them, but I have them all the time. Okay. Well, um, I mean, that's interesting, you know, because you've you've picked up on several... Key issues. I mean, the, the bloodline angle, which you feel drawn to. You know, I mentioned that several times in the show about how people feel driven and drawn to things without really yeah, it's, knowing why, it's, um, but they just are. But yeah, right, I mean, the, then, the Spanish thing is like really interesting. Not only, you know, have you got this fascination for the bloodline, but you've you've dwelled on the issue of Spain. You know, which is sixty yeah, percent yeah. RH negatives with the Basques. So. You know, I think that is sort of another example of, you know, just one of many where we've seen more and more pieces of the puzzle come together. Right, and I had a huge hit with the Anunnaki. They had a place in, I think it's New Mexico or Arizona I went to. I didn't know that they had been there, but they had been, and I picked up on a whole bunch of stuff there. So it's just I don't you know I'm just going I don't have anything I'm doing with this information but I'll you I will probably contact you on Facebook. Okay, well, as I, said, I know there I are just, like seven or eight Nick Redferns, but you'll scroll down, you'll see me. So yeah, yeah, okay. And I just I'm sorry that you don't have anything directly about Spain, but hopefully over yeah. time you'll find something. Yeah. Well, hopefully. About the I, mean, I wish I did. <laughs> I do know there have been a couple of books written about UFOs in Spain um, over the years. But okay. um, offhand, I cannot remember the titles, but I, um, 
you know, there, there have been a lot of good cases from Spain. There was like a major wave of sightings in 1973 in Spain uh, that went on for several months of like people seeing strange humanoids and UFO landing cases and all sorts of stuff. Okay, and my mother had, I don't, I can go out in the sun, but my mother got something that she called sun poison. Mm. She would get out in the sun and she would break out in these blisters everywhere. Wow. So, yeah, so we're just a whole bunch of lizards in my family. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All righty, thank you so much, and I'll, I'll visit your Facebook. All right, thanks, Shane. Okay, thanks. Bye, Lavender. Bye-bye. Wow, that was that's really interesting. Yeah, it is. Um, that, you know, everybody who's been on so far has actually sort of confirmed, you know, a lot of the characteristics that we've been talking about. So. Uh huh. Well, we have um, we have another caller, and we are going to be talking to Trish in just a few seconds here. Hi, Trish. You are oh, on the. Oh, hi, Lavender and Ariel and Nick. Um, hi, Trish. It's Trisha. It's a, um, you remember I, I was your guest with the star seeds. Um, I'm an RH negative uh, bloodline as well. And um, Nick, I went through all of the drama with the pregnancy and ended up in the hospital and God knows what with transfers and transfusions and things, but not because of the baby being um, pierced or anything like that. I was actually allergic. I worked out because I threw all the pills away and said, I'm not going to do this anymore, um, and healed myself instantly, by the way, after being um, hospitalized for like five weeks. I mean, I was in a really bad space, but iron. I'm allergic to iron, and I've always been anemic. The weird thing uh-huh. is, is that I was in every top sports team you can think of as a kid, and I was always anemic. I was always testing anemic. But it didn't stop a lot of things. And I think the RH bloodline assimilates iron differently as well. I'm, I haven't quite worked that out. But, but the really interesting thing for me was um, the RH has always been me attracting um, weird royalty. I've met a lot of head of states and kings and presidents and um, I was born on a piece of land called Crown Land um, and at the end of my street, 50 yards from where I live, my father bought a house and I believe he was the RH line in my um, family. He was really into all of that astrology and eclipses and all of that stuff. But on this point of land, are two rocks which were placed there thousands of years ago for the equinox and I spent my whole childhood playing on these rocks and at the end of the land is the obisque and it is also a volcano and there was a rock formation um, that came up that they destroyed that almost looked like a um, pyramid and I think as a soul I went right back to that piece of land you know like it was where I was supposed to have been born and it's sort of like a, um, you know, there's certain things that trigger us. But when you were just talking really quickly about writing books, I'm actually writing a book right now about synchronicities because the oh. synchronicities that I had were so bizarre that there people just even think, no, that couldn't be possible. Yeah. And um, it was all follow the gut, follow it. You know, I saw someone across a room, I, I would just walk over and smile and the next thing they were taking me to the next part of that jigsaw and the next part and the next part. And they just, people would talk about someone and boom, they're in my house. 
And it wasn't anything about um, when I talk about the synchronicities, like that, this is all pre-computer. This is like all pre-everything. You know, we were just following your own matrix, basically. And um, so I'm looking at it through writing it from that perspective, you know, from um, who we align with, you know, when we follow that instinct because it's well, um, perfection. Good. I mean, I always encourage people if they've got their own story to tell, to tell it because, you know, people enjoy reading like a first-person account. They, they can relate to it when it's... Uh, <laughs> written by someone they can you know they say hey this this looks just like me this seems just like me you know yeah well i've got to tell you just something before i go i'm actually not writing it as a first person i'm writing it as a third person oh, okay. and so she has told the story to somebody else but the person that she's actually telling it to is herself so she actually unfolds the story through her inner self you see the the revelation as this happened, it was sort of like what was that revelation and um you know, just really quickly, my dad was such a forward thinker, well, he manifested a stroke in nineteen seventy four and I say because he wanted to go to the Philippines to have psychic healing, that was his whole thing. And, you know, hands in the body, it was all in the in the rags in the newspapers. Mm. And so I was the only one at 17 that was working, that was making a lot of money because I was a model. And so I basically almost paid for him and my mother to go for this bizarre trip. And it wasn't a believer or anything, but it was like his, never was a religious man, but just suddenly had this twist of fate that so this was mm. what he wanted. Well, about three or four years later, I end up getting a free trip to the Philippines as a gift, you know, kind mm. of a twist of fate. And I end up having a conversation with President Marcus, <laughs> twist of fate, <laughs> about psychic healers in the Philippines. You know, wow. so it it all came about. And then mm. before I left to go to America, a lady appeared at my door. You know, we're talking about people that just appear. I thought mm. she belonged to my roommate and she thought she belonged to me. And she said, you have something wrong with your back. I need to um, fix it. Um, she lit a candle that flew a flame about a foot high. The Doberman we had to put downstairs, it was just going howling. And she went in and massaged my back, and suddenly it sounded like it was noodles, and it was um, this horrible kind of sound of oil and noodles. And I turned around, and she said, where's the tissue? She wiped my back. It was covered in blood, and there was not a scar on my body. And she ended up doing this full circle of um, what was going on. So anyway, that was just my little tale for you. No, that's cool. I shall uh, look forward. Well, when you get your book out, you'll have to let me know. That sounds cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I will. And thank All you, right, Lavender. Thanks. And I'll send you a copy too. You'll really enjoy it. It's sort of celebrity orientated. You know, those people that you bump into. Um, and they're all, I, I bet you anything like they're all RH bloodline. And by the way, Zachariah Sitchin was RH bloodline too. Mm -hmm. they're, they're negative. So, and I also dream a lot, not dream, meditation, have seen Princess Diana three times now in meditation. She's, you know, come to me, you know, shake hands or something. So it's kind of weird, you know, for, I, she's in that bloodline as well. 
Well, I mean, you know, a lot of this, as I said, is all interconnected. It's just a matter of trying to figure out, you know, putting all the pieces together. And I think that's one of the good things about everybody who's called in so far, you know, tonight is that there's a little bit more insight into the things we're talking about, you know, and um, like with the synchronicities, more examples and, and things like that, which is good. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm, that's basically what I'm doing it on. But anyway, I'll let you get on oh. to the next one. And thanks. Great show, great show. I really enjoyed thanks it. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you, Tricia. Bye-bye. Oh, yes. Bye. Take care. Thanks, Tricia. Well, I I think we might, we have uh, we have one more caller that's still in the screening room, and um, that'll be the last that we'll have time for. So um, it'll just take a a, a few more seconds but this has just been fascinating and i i'm sure that that we could have you come back on and talk even more it in uh depth about the bloodline of the gods because this is something that i mean our audience our starseed um you know extraterrestrial souls in human bodies and i'm sure a lot of our audiences are each negative or um at least fascinated in this in this concept and the research that you've done. That's why and we love the stuff that you do, Nick, because you really do research it without, you know, an agenda. Some people have a theory and then they go find the research that's going to prove them right. But you just you just go and find the facts and then connect all the dots. Yeah, I try and sort of take, I mean, my background when I left school, I began working on a rock music back, music back in a magazine back in England. And, uh, you know, they sort of taught me all the background of journalism and how to, you know, write a story, structure it and do independent research and all that kind of thing. And so I, I sort of like to apply, and I think it's right to apply sort of regular journalistic techniques to investigating something like this and as you say you know you go out looking for the facts not to try and prove a preconceived belief or something you you want to believe you know you you just go and see where it leads and then you tell the story from there so right well our our caller is out of the screening room now so we're going to be talking to kathleen who is rh negative let me get your mic open sweetie okay you're on the air kathleen aloha from hawaii Hello. So, yes, I am RH negative, and I have an extra vertebrae, Mm. and I have the low blood pressure and low pulse. And I would have um, a reoccurring dream when I was small, and I would be sitting in the lotus position, and there would be some kind of danger that would arise and I would just levitate, and I would just be right on the reach of the danger, and I never felt scared. And um, I have had alien contact in my dreams of different sorts, but uh, I don't recall a session, although, of course, it could have happened. And I noticed, too, that I think I've I've been given um it's like it feels like a little bit larger than a BB and it's right below my left ear mm-hmm. on on the side and I just have this this thing here that I noticed in the last couple of years but I never had it before that. 
and I think they they shift me too. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you get a lot of cases like that, Kathleen, where you know I didn't really cover this in the book, but there are a lot of you know accounts of. Um, so-called alien implants and um, and things like this. And uh, I used to know the late Dr. Roger Lear quite well, and, you know, he heavily uh, dug into that all, that entire angle. And uh, you get a lot of accounts like that in abductions of people talking about things inserted into their nasal cavities and, and, and ears and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I'm... I would love to read your book. I think it's a very fascinating subject about the art. Oh, well, thanks. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, that's interesting. You know, you brought up the fact that not only are you RH negative, but uh, you've got the extra vertebra as well. And, um, you know, it just, it just demonstrates exactly how many people out there are RH negative how, have all of these exact attributes, physical or, you know, spiritual and everything else. And I also have quite a bit of the starseed marking. Well, that was not surprising. I was wondering about that myself. And I don't know. I live in Hawaii, so it's a long ways to go to Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we have we have a lady coming from Hawaii um, for our Arkansas trip next month. So you know, if there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> so maybe we'll see you there at one future time. But we so appreciate you calling in, and um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I knew that a lot of our audience was going to um, be calling in. I don't know if I've ever seen the switchboard this full, but <laughs> that's that's all the time that we have for questions this evening. And I do want to... Um, mention again that if you want to get a copy of Nick's book, Bloodline of the Gods, go to Warwick Associates, W-A-R-W-I-C-K, Associates.com, and you can click on the uh, picture of the, book, of the book cover. And that's is that the best way to get the book, Nick? Yeah, or people um, can go direct, because uh, that will take you sort of via Amazon, or you can just go direct to Amazon, you know, just type in my name and the title. Or you can also get it off the shelves in Barnes & Noble. Um, they, they they stock um, my books on the shelves in Barnes & Noble, so you can get it from there as well. Um, and I said if people want to chat or share stories or want some advice or question answering, you know, doesn't have to be on this subject, on any subject, men in black, anything, if I can help them, you know, I'll be, I'm happy to. And, and the best way to reach me is through the, uh, is through Facebook. Well, excellent. Well, Lavendar, we're just wrapping up now, so do um, you want to make any uh, final comments or questions of Nick? Well, I'm in Oklahoma, Nick, and you're in Texas, so you know what? We, we need to meet at some point in time. Yeah, it's not like we're a million. I mean, I'm in Dallas, so I'm not that far from the Oklahoma border anyway. You know, so. oh, and maybe sometime you could join us in Arkansas at one of our Starseed quests. So oh, I'll, yeah, I'll be, I'll be happy to do that. That would be cool. Yeah, I'll, get, I'll send yeah. you information, and I'll keep in contact with you, okay? Okay. And when you uh, are ready to come back on um, to talk about Men in Black, we'll, we'll be able to schedule you. So just let me know when you want to do it. All right, well, as soon as I get my... Because it's only just come out, so I actually haven't had my supply come yet. But when they do, I'll mail one up to you, and then you can have a good read of it, and then we can figure out when you want me on after that. So. 
Okay, thank you, Nick. Okay, bye. Okay. All right, thanks. Excellent. Thanks, Lavender. Thanks, everybody. It has been such a pleasure to have you back on, and we will look forward to your next visit. You just do such a, a really wonderful job in presenting your material. Oh, well, cool. Thanks. It's, you know, I always like to get feedback uh, just to know what people sort of think. You know, when you're sort of you're writing something for, I guess, sort of six months and researching it for a year or whatever, you kind of get so immersed into it. Uh, it's good to sort of get the perspective of people up from the outside looking in, you know, rather than you just being so focused on it yourself. Right. Well, I'm sure that you'll have a a whole lot of orders from listeners of Starseed Radio Academy, and we do encourage you to pick up a copy of Bloodline of the Gods or any of Nick's books. They're all very, very well done and fascinating subject matters. So on behalf of all of us here, Nick Redfern, thank you so much for joining us, and you can find Nick on Facebook. Correct, yeah. Well, thanks, everybody. You are so welcome. And we will be back next week, and we want to thank you all so much for listening. Until then, take care of yourselves, and keep a smile on your face. Okay, bye-bye. been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 